0: This is the Fix Your Sciatica Podcast. What is pain? That is a really complicated and broad question because there are going to be a lot of definitions, but also a lot of different what we call mechanisms in regards to how our bodies and brain process pain and how it can protect us. And so rather than just have me tell you all about the various different chemical and physical pathways that can happen, there's also a large part in regards to how the brain processes the information from our body, and so we can determine it, whether it be pain or a normal stimulus. And so why not talk with someone who is an expert in regards to how the mind works? And so today's guest is Dr. Deb Nelson who is a psychologist and actually specializes in working with folks who are experiencing chronic pain. And so Deb, thank you so much for being on today's episode.
1: I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity for us to have another conversation about chronic pain. I really enjoyed our first conversation and I've been looking forward to today. So, and this is a topic I'm super passionate about and I know you are too.
0: Oh, absolutely. It's a, Yeah, I cannot wait to share it with this world, and I've been waiting uh, for the right person. And when we first met, uh, probably about, what, two, three months ago, we actually had a a fantastic conversation. We sat at the bar for for quite some time talking about how it affects the lives of everyone uh, in the world and what we see in the clinic. And for you, you're seeing not the psychological, how the brain processes it. And then for me, I'll see it in the physical manifestations and how people move. And for the listeners out there who are hearing you for the first time, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became a psychologist um, helping patients deal with chronic pain?
1: Yeah, so um, my personal story is a little bit meandering. I've always been interested in the mind-body connection, and um, I observe people who experience chronic pain or chronic health issues live a really full life, and I saw people who were seemingly very healthy um, fail to thrive or enjoy life. Um, when I was in college, I actually started as a psych major and I loved it and, um, so much so I'm going to date myself here. I hosted rap sessions in my apartment as part of my, um, schoolwork. And then along the way, I had a professor tell me that I was going to need to get a graduate degree to make any money at this. And since I was so tired of being a broke college, you didn't know it, yeah. That, that's not going to work. And so I switched to um, business. I then um, pursued a career in advertising and marketing, but I always held this interest in the mind-body connection. And while I was in the field of um, advertising and marketing, I also became certified in massage therapy and became a doula. I eventually put all of that in hold and became a full-time mom for a short period of time. Always knowing in the back of my mind that I wanted to return to work. So when I started to get ready to go back to work, I was casting about what is this thing that I want to do for the second part of my career, and psychology kept coming up over and over again. And so I talked to people who had different licensing, um, and I actually started um, a master's program just to get my feet wet and get started. When I was in the master's program, I shared with a professor that I was very interested in working with um, chronic health conditions. And he suggested I pursue my doctorate since I was gonna be dealing with medical professionals. So launched uh, into a different grad school program, the doctoral program. And at one of my practicum training sites, I was working with older adults and There I saw the very significant impact of chronic pain. And I was stunned at the level of disability due to pain and responses or non-responses to pain management. Um, That led me to my dissertations research, which is older older adults' perceptions of pain medications. And two major things I learned One was there's a huge generational difference in terms of interpreting chronic pain. The older, older adults, folks now who are in their 90s or approaching 100, they have lived through World War II. And for them, pain and suffering was part of life. You just pull up your boots and you keep going. The younger folks, the baby boomers, and I'm in that category, We grew up with better living through pharmaceuticals, so why experience pain? And to me, both of those extremes were problematic. The second thing I learned um, in doing my research was that everyone uses heuristics, which are mental shortcuts for solving problems. And I saw that everybody had a heuristic for managing pain, and each person's heuristic was really complex. And it was based on their personal history, their narratives, their moods, expectations, SBS, SES resources. Anyhow, since graduation and licensing, I've specialized in working with chronic pain, and I've found the work really rewarding because I do actually see people improve the quality of their lives.
0: What a journey has come going through, uh, you know, various different stages of your professional career I think you put up a really interesting point about the generational differences because it's based off of the environment in which you were raised in, which then will actually formulate your beliefs and your perception of the the pain and the the challenges that you actually face. Um, And as I start to progress in my age and start to notice the other various different generations and working with patients of all different ages, I can actually see the true, uh, we'll call like the cultural generation generational differences in in regards to how people can perceive and even describe the pain that they're in. And it's very, very interesting. I think one of the big questions that I know that when we first met um, and knowing that you're a psychologist, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are wondering too, is that there's psychologists, there are psychiatrists, there are mental health coaches, there are behavioral health coaches, there are a lot of different professions that are out there that are uh involved in helping the mind and the brain process uh trauma information and even pain um as well but could you briefly tell us a little bit more about the differences and what separates psychology from the other various different uh professions out there
1: yeah yeah hopefully uh this will be a helpful explanation um First off, I want to say, though, that I'm really grateful for all of those folks working in this chronic pain space, Be- and, and I actually wish there were more. Um, I encourage all of my colleagues to get training in chronic pain because it is so widespread. It's not uncommon for somebody to come to therapy uh, about a work conflict or relationship issues. And oh, yeah, and by the way, I've got this bad back. I've been dealing with fibromyalgia or IBS or whatever the chronic pain issue is. Um, Broadly addressing those different types of professions, I think uh, based on the training and the licensing, each of them come with a specific helpful set of tools. So, for example, coaches might work well with somebody in terms of setting goals and determining priorities around health behaviors, right? Um, Psychiatrists, um, although many do provide talk therapy, primarily psychiatrists, it seems are Um, providing med management, which is super important. Um, LCSWs, licensed clinical social workers, um, have unique training in that they might be more able to help a client access broader community resources. And then licensed marriage and family therapists are really great in terms of working with folks around family issues, relationship issues, marriage issues. all of these professions can help people improve their mood and as we'll probably talk about more a little bit later mood has a huge impact on how we interpret the pain signal Um, now working with a psychologist especially someone who has specific in specific training in pain psychology We offer both the warm supportive aspects of psychotherapy as well as the in-depth clinical knowledge of pain physiology and its far-reaching psychological impacts.
0: This episode is brought to you by the Sciatica Protocol. Experience pain relief directly through your phone, anytime, anywhere. Interested in learning more? Check us out at ifixturesciatica.com slash d-sciatica-protocol. So it seems as if, uh, I mean, there's a lot of various different tools. I think um, from my interpretation with with your background and your profession, you have the opportunity to kind of tie in a lot of different aspects, um, which I think is really important. Um, There's a huge space for people who are very specialized in various different subsets, but also there's a huge opportunity for the folks who have access to the knowledge of all these different subsets to put them together and really act as the Um, And and some people would call it like the holistic view uh, and be able to integrate all this. And so I really appreciate the work that you do, because when I work with clients, I can address the physical, I can create a safe space to get them moving uh, in a way that is not painful. But then when you're dealing with pain for such a long period of time, it does take a toll and does leave an impact on the psychological aspect in which what we're going to be covering today. And so... Today's episode, we're going to be talking specifically about like what pain is, but then we're also going to take a deep dive into the chronic pain uh, mechanism as well. And so the big question that we're going to try to answer today, uh, which I hope we can answer today, which I think we will, is going to be what is pain in itself? And together we'll have a, a definition or a set of definitions to be able to describe it. And so um, in the least amount of words as possible, and we'll take a deeper dive into it. Dad, how would you describe or how would you define what pain is?
1: In the least amount of words possible.
0: Yeah, your elevator pitch.
1: (laughs) Uh, Pain is an unpleasant experience. Agreed. Whether it, it can be physical or psychological, and the two are usually linked.
0: Yeah, I'm in 100% agreement with you. My elevator pitch when it comes to pain is I like to say uh, pain is the body's and mind request for a change. And so Mm -hmm. leading up to this, um, I know that there are various different pain mechanisms, but I wanted to make sure I was providing the most accurate information. And so as I was going through and researching, um, you can actually go into the National Library of Medicine listeners. You can just type in whatever subject you want on Google. And then type in the letters N as in Nancy, CBI. And that actually allows you to get the National Center for Biotechnology Information where you're getting the most, uh, pretty much most up-to-date uh, information. You can read the abstracts. And if you really want to take a deep dive into the research, you can for sure buy a subscription and read that. And going through, um, there was an update to the chronic pain. It was on the, the, under the stat pearls. Um, and there were a couple of different mechanisms, which was great because it gave us an opportunity to be able to say, OK, there are various different categories of pain. And one of the and so what people often associate pain with is often really tied to both nociceptive pain and musculoskeletal pain. And so listeners out there, if you ever heard the term nociceptive, never heard of it it's really what we call a chemical it's the release of chemicals when there is some sort of tissue damage so you fall and scrape your knee it's not actually the scraping of the knee that actually causes. well yes you're having mechanical damage to that but once you scrape your knee your body actually releases inflammatory chemicals to protect that joint or area as well as to facilitate healing so nociception is this chemical process which allows us to be able to take this information send up to our brain to make sure that we are protecting ourselves from that specific area. Um, and and um, one of the major things that you can do during that time is to be able to protect that area to make sure that you're not irritating it. Um, and then another category is what we call the musculoskeletal pain. So you're having shoulder pain or back pain or leg pain. Being able to say, this is a specific area of pain and I can press it and I can really, really localize it as well. Um, another category of pain um, is the inflammatory pain. So that's where we're looking at, again, inflammation, but we're also dealing with either infections or any other. Um, the category is also autoimmune disorders as well, so say stuff like rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and then we have no susceptible pain, chemical. We have musculoskeletal pain, which is a little bit more of a mechanical standpoint. Uh, we have inflammatory pain, which again is going to be chemical. Uh, and then we actually actually have true mechanical pain. And one of the really interesting things about mechanical pain is during assessments, when you're meeting with any practitioner, with the onset of your pain, there are a couple of questions that we need to ask you in order for us to identify, is this going to be within the scope of what we can provide? And the questions that I often ask are called medical red flags. And so what I'm trying to do is actually detect any sort of, uh, Abnormal findings, and so what we're really trying to rule out is any sort of what we call malignancies or tumors or cancers. Because if you're having unrelenting pain and it doesn't change with position, and it comes on pretty suddenly, and also presents itself with other various different symptoms that are strange, that is something we want to rule out. And so, mechanical pain, such as tumors, will press on various different areas, causing pain, but also causing a f- bunch of other issues further down the line. And then one of the mo- uh, one of the big reasons as to why you listeners are on this podcast right now is because you're experiencing sciatica pain, which is going to be irritation along your nerves. And that's what we're looking at when it comes to neuropathic pain, the ability for your nerves to send the signals, but also get processed in the brain, but then leads us into the concept and Deb's big concentration specialty, which I'm so thankful for is talking about the psychogenic combination of neuropathic pain and also how we actually perceive it. So I just talked a lot right there, Deb. Um, <laughs> but if, if you could, can you tell us a little bit more about when you're working with clients and they're saying, Deb, there's I've been dealing with this pain for such a long period of time. By the time they come to see you, they've gone through all the physical and chemical things and they come and they need help from you. How would you end up going about like describing this pain? Now we can elaborate a little bit more in regards to how do you educate your patients in regards to what the pain is that they're dealing with, especially if they don't see anything via MRIs or they're outside of that healing window.
1: Right. and um, Great explanation on pain. That was awesome. Um, So yeah, people, when they come to see me for chronic pain, the average person has been living with chronic pain for several years. So they've, they've been to multiple doctors, they've been to pain specialists, muscle and physical therapy, which I'm very grateful for. They've tried various courses of medications, um, and yet the pain persists, and they often sometimes don't know why, like the imaging will be totally clear, but they still have pain. So, The way that I explain pain to my clients, and this is an organizing principle for my work, um, is um, I, I use this really simple representation of the spinal cord in the brain. For your listeners, I've got my forearm and my hand in a fist. And so the pain signal travels up the spinal cord and then it hits the brain. And the brain interprets the signal, okay? So, Let's say, for example, you stub your toe. Okay. What's going to happen is that signal is going to travel from your foot, up your leg, up your spinal cord, and it'll hit your brain and hit the thalamus, which is a relay station. And it go- the signal goes off into some important spots. One of the places it lands is your limbic system, which is your mood. And all of us have had the experience of... Um, if we stub our toe and we're in a pretty good mood, it's a 5 out of 10. But if we stub our toe and we're in a bad mood or we're angry, it's a 12 out of 10. So mood has a big impact in how the brain interprets pain. Um, the other thing that happens is that the signal will go off to what's called the somatosensory cortex, which, as you know, is the brain goes, oh, that's the right big toe and not the left big toe, it tells which body part. And then the other place the signal goes, again, this is very simplified, but I'm hoping it's helpful, is it goes to the prefrontal cortex. And this is the part of the brain that's assessing the situation. Um, What caused that? And we look around and we see it's a coffee table and it's not a snake and between the limbic system, the somatosensory, and the prefrontal cortex, our brain drives an interpretation of the signal, and then it drives a reaction. And so, and and again, this is the the core of my work. And usually the reaction is some sort of movement. Um, Oh, my hand's hot. Oh, I see it's on the stove. I need to get it off the stove.
0: What a Um, great explanation, a vivid explanation. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to piggyback off of that. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, no. um, But, you know, to go go further with this, um, you know, when we stub our toe and a lot of injuries, healing happens and the signal goes away, right? But with chronic pain, it's like that signal gets stuck in the on switch. So the... The injury can heal, and there's no further need for this danger signal, which is the brain is wired to interpret that signal as danger, yet it continues for complex reasons. Um, one of the things that happens, which I'm sure as you know, actually is that um, there's a process called central sensitization, which is where the nerves basically co opt surrounding neurons into becoming nociceptive neurons. So literally what happens is that the pathway of pain is expanded and it increases the signaling. Um, it's believed that some of the predisposing factors for this are People who've experienced trauma, if they're experiencing depression, anxiety, or if they've got multiple chronic health conditions. Fortunately, there are tools, ways that we can help reduce that.
0: That's huge. Um, I mean, in combining all these various different aspects of your brain and based off of the chemical signals or the electrical signals that come up from your spinal cord, in a way, you're we're kind of tying in this concept of context. Um, is what is the scenario in which I am receiving this specific uh stimulus, this specific event. And when it comes to pain processing and the concept of context, for listeners, if you're having trouble trying to conceptualize this, it just occurred to me where what's interesting is that especially with the rise of technology now everyone's sending emails everyone's sending text the thing is that consider those text messages minus all the emojis and minus all the exclamation points and pronounce, uh, what is it punctuation you're really just getting words and that's what nerve impulses are they're just uh, they're just words and the thing is that words once they're spoken depending on how they're actually being presented in the context of the scenario, it can either be positive, negative, confrontational, passive, all these different things based on the tonality of it. And the tonality will actually change how you perceive that specific message. And so realistically speaking, when you're getting this information, all this information from whatever body part you're having, if you have an irritated sciatic nerve, it's electrical impulses that are like words and an email that get transferred up through your brain. But then your brain is trying to read it in a specific voice, whether it be um, an aggressive voice, a calming voice. It's a really interesting thing. And it just occurred to me now because I I learned I I, I, um, came across this joke about um, the interesting uh, nature of uh, Mandarin. will actually indicate the meaning of it as well. And this comedian said, truth be told, the tones don't really matter because it's the context of the subject that you're talking about that actually allows you to understand what you're truly meaning. And, and that's a big thing is being able to say, okay, I'm experiencing this electrical signal at this point. What is the scenario in which I'm experiencing this, uh, this signal? And if it's a traumatic event, we're gonna be perceiving it as pain. Um, and then, uh, various different structures with that. And so Deb, what you're talking about is how the brain perceives it. And the majority of the clients that you end up working with are people who've been living in pain for a long period of time. Typical healing process for any sort of injured tissue is around six to 12 weeks. And when people experience an injury and they go past that 12 week point, the majority of the structures that need to be healed are healed. And they reach into the, what we call the chronic stage. And so since we're talking about how pain is being perceived in the brain, a lot of people might have heard from their doctors, their physical therapists, whoever, or even the internet saying that the pain that you're experiencing is in your head. And it can be very frustrating. And so I'm going to go ahead and address the elephant in the room. People who are, p- people who are dealing with chronic pain, it, are they crazy? Because <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people think is that when they're told that something is in their brain, they're like, oh, my I going nuts? So can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, gosh. I, I mean, it just, uh, it makes me um, angry or want to cry or something. It brings up a bunch of emotions for me. I have so many clients who've been referred to me because the doctors have said, we don't see anything wrong with you. It's all in your head. You need to go see a shrink and so these people end up in my office like i don't really know why i'm here but i'm here i'm so desperate for help ah so frustrating um but yeah so what i can say is that um people with chronic pain are not crazy but dealing with chronic pain will make you feel like you're crazy especially if you have an md say there's nothing physically wrong with you you need to see a shrink The thing about chronic pain is that, um, understandably, it makes people feel anxious or depressed. And we know that anxious and depressed um, brains have trouble with short term memory and with processing speed. So that's just a fact. Um, Furthermore, the signal keeps calling our attention. Excuse me. And it's hard to focus on anything else. And it's especially true if the pain is in your head, like you have a migraine or trigeminal nerve pain. Um, You know, the thing about the brain, I think there's three important things to remember about or to understand about the brain and chronic pain. And the first is, is that the brain's, Job, its goal is to protect us, to keep us alive. And 80% of the signaling that our brain.
0: What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL.
1: Except up is just about
0: maintaining body functions.
1: Oh, we need a little more sodium. Oh, we need a little water. Oh, we need more food. Oh, too full. Too much food. Oh, we need to go to the bathroom. Oh, we need to sleep. Right. It's just to keep all of this going. The second thing is that the brain consumes 25% of the glucose that we take in. And that's a huge amount of glucose considering our brain is like maybe this big and we've got all this other real estate that needs glucose. So the result of that is that the brain um, likes to become predictive which is super helpful for us, but it can be really faulty at times. And um, I'd like to talk about some really interesting work that's being done by Dr. Aaliyah Crum. um, She runs Stanford's Mind and Body Lab. And she looks at how mindsets affect health outcomes. And she did this one study that was really fascinating. Um, participants were told that they were drinking a healthy milkshake And after drinking it, they reported not feeling very full afterwards. Then on another occasion, same participants and literally the same milkshake. They were told that this milkshake is really indulgent, high fat. And after consuming that milkshake, people reported feeling very full. Um, I I could just go on with many of these stories. Another one, um, which is pretty... Popular in the pain world is the story of a construction worker in the UK. He was at a job site and he jumped and landed, his foot landed on a nail. It was about seven inches long and it went right through his boot. Panic and extreme pain immediately set in his buddies took me to the er they removed the nail removed the boot and saw that the nail had actually not caused any tissue damage it had remarkably gone between his toes nonetheless he was in extreme pain and another thing that i find really fascinating is that you know we all know about runners high people who run uh some distance experience this high but yet people who are forced to run, like say that high school kid whose mom made him run cross country, <laughs> he can run great distances, but he won't experience a runner's high. So how all of this relates to chronic pain is that, you know, the best example I have is that we might injure ourselves, say, bending over and picking something up. That There's real damage. We, we lifted something incorrectly. The injury will heal, yet every time we go to bend over, our brain's gonna go, alert, 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 this is a problem, it'll send off a danger signal, when in fact, it's actually very safe for us.
0: Yeah, so it's, um, again, it's that context in regards to, okay, here's the situation in regards Mm -hmm. to, okay, we could be in danger, or even just how you look at it. And I think what's really interesting throughout this, there, there, there are two big points Uh, based off of this explanation, which I find to be extremely helpful and informative. um, Number one, how you look and describe your pain will already start influencing how you feel. And so an example, um, oh, I'm still on my words, but for example, um, let's use MRIs for example. Um, MRIs are very, very helpful when it comes to diagnosing fractures and cancers. Like those are the two major reasons as to why you would want to get an MRI to make sure that there's no true like tissue damage. Interestingly enough, there's a increasingly large percentage of people who will have abnormal findings, say arthritis or degenerative discs in their back every decade in life. But those folks also don't have any pain. So seeing that, but then also being told, and I've seen this a lot when people come and speak with me, they were told, oh, I have a bad back. My doctor says I have a back of an 80-year-old. So already they're in this mindset that their back is bad and, or their herniated disc is causing the pain. I can't tell you how many patients I've worked with who've had um, sciatica pain, say, down the left leg, but they took, like, took a look at the MRI, and the MRI said they actually have a disc herniation on the right side. And so the truth be told is that a herniation on the right is not going to result in left-sided symptoms to begin with. And so it already creates this, I I coined this term from other practitioners, but we call them thought viruses where we're put in a position where something is put in a negative light. And that automatically, as you said, starts to kind of light up those areas of our brain that actually cause pain. And so here we have all these different aspects, and we've broken down how the body and the brain can perceive pain and process it. When someone comes in and speaks with you, um, what is what are kind of like the typical, I guess, strategies that you go through with them. Slash, what is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal to have them go to a complete zero out of ten pain? Like by the time they leave your office, it's like, boof, I'm cured. Or is it really a more of a matter of, okay, I teaching them how to deal with the signals that we they're receiving from that specific area or in that portion of the brain how to perceive that? So um, sorry, yeah, that was that was a big thing. But yeah, what 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 would people expect when it comes to working with someone such as yourself? And what are those expectations?
1: Yeah, yeah. So setting expectations super important, right? And um, yeah, it's a great question. I, I mean, it'd be unethical for me to tell people that I can guarantee their pain will go away. That That's just wrong. What I tell people is that I do believe that they will be able to reclaim important parts of their life. So I, I look at the individual More broadly, globally, we talk about important hobbies, how they live, dreams, um, important relationships. Basically, what we want to do is, and I don't know your listeners again, so this is, can see this, so I've got a fist. And when people are diagnosed with chronic pain, my other hand comes over and swamps it, and it takes over. And in my work, what I hope to do is just switch it. So people reclaim their life and the chronic pain goes to the background. Now, what ends up happening is that the pain experience improves. So what I often see is that people's objective measures of pain, like if they were to see somebody like you or to go see a pain specialist, their pain may still be a six out of 10 yet their quality of life has increased dramatically. And because the quality of their life has increased dramatically, their subjective reporting of their pain experience has improved dramatically. Does that make sense? That's, and to me, that's what matters is, you know, that we get people to live the lives that they wanna live.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. It's being able to live your life, and that's and that's important, um, because especially it with all of our responsibilities, but also all the opportunities and beautiful things that life has to offer us, you have the opportunity to be able to enjoy them all. And that pain that people experience for long periods of time, being able to reframe it and be able to perceive it as information, rather than something that's going to be really stopping you and putting in your way. Um, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And you do some really amazing work and, um, Deb, yeah, but yeah I'm, I'm very, very thankful for all the work that you do because there are definitely things that I can't address in the time that I have available and the education that I have. And I'm so thankful for professionals, such as yourself to be able to address the other aspect of it and, and, and being able to look at it from a whole picture standpoint. Um, let's talk about the concept of timing. Um, We were talking about how there's various different mechanisms of pain. And there obviously truly is like pain, especially on initial injury, there is tissue damage, but also at the point of when we reach to a point of healing, people are still experiencing pain. You said that you worked with people to like years and years and years of experiencing pain based on your experience. when do you think is a good time for someone to start investigating whether or not they should be looking into working with someone like yourself because you're absolutely right if someone goes to a doctor and the doctor says there's nothing wrong with you i think you just need to go see a psychiatrist or shrink then itself with the stigma and as well as just being told that it's in your head it's a lot right and so how can people avoid that and be a little bit more proactive and identify okay now is the right time for me to talk to someone like that
1: I actually think everybody should see a psychologist all the time. (laughs) so there's that aspect of it but um I mean even you know it's and gosh I was just thinking about this and preparing for our conversation I think at every every point along the way so let's say for example you're cutting vegetables for dinner and you slice your hand open and it's bad and your spouse is driving you off to the ER to get your arm sewed back up or your hands sewed back together, you're going to be experiencing fear and panic, right? I mean, that's natural and you should, because this is your body's alarm. There's danger here. And yet, if you have an understanding, just a simple understanding that this is a totally appropriate response that'll turn the volume down on it. it. It gives you a little bit of psychological distance. You get a little bit of an observing experience. Doesn't mean it's gonna go away, but again, it helps turn the volume down on it. And that reduces the impact on your system. You can think more clearly about what you need to do or not do. So that being said, in my experience, People are often not ready to see a pain psychologist until they've exhausted all of their other options. Um, You know, people will say, but, you know, there's still another surgery that I can try or, you know, I can still um, I want to continue with these opioids or whatever it might be. I do wish that people would utilize the services of pain psychologists along the way, and myself and most people who are in this field, tend to be I know I'm agnostic about pain medications people take them or don't take them I'm trusting the advice of their physician Um, and I love collaborating with other medical professionals so having somebody like myself on board all along the way would be great but again most people don't come to someone like me until they've you know the doctors have said well this is as good as it's going to get
0: that makes sense I'm actually quite uh, I'm in agreement with you um, with with pretty much being able to address the psychological aspect. And I think one of the great things about this day and age, uh, 2023, there's been a huge push on um, in, uh, implementing uh, mental health uh, strategies. Um, and I'm so glad that they're bringing it up because there's so many tools available but people don't know when to use them or how to use them if we don't know that they're available to us right and so being able to implement someone like you along the route of the healing process is going to uh, help out tenfold and accelerate the healing process even better not necessarily from a physical standpoint but from how from a from a perceptual uh, and mental standpoint which i think is um, extremely important And i think about um trauma specifically and i think about back when i was a te- uh child i wasn't even a teacher. i think it was like seven or eight years old i remember at when i when i was growing up my house we had the outdoor pool and at the outdoor pool we were scrubbing and we had one of those pool skimmers kind of just like stand like on the sidewalk on the cement and i remember trying to step over it but i didn't take a big enough step so i ended up tripping over it, and i ended up smashing my knee and i smashed my knee my knee was bloody i was screaming i was so freaked out but it left such a mark to the point where you're not supposed to run on the pool deck you're not supposed to run on the pool and i remember ever even now i see people like jog or walk quickly on the pool deck i already start to get goosebumps it ends up tr- creating this like response because i had this memory and i wouldn't be surprised that even being able to say all right you uh, you tripping and falling was a product because you did not step on uh, you did not lift your foot high enough it wasn't the fact that it's a pool deck that results in you experiencing this pain or experiencing this injury and so being able to have you at the beginning of the front lines allows us to be able to I wouldn't call it move on but move forward and allow us to be able to process and go on living our lives um, to, to the best of our ability and so exactly we're talking about oh go ahead
1: No, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, this, it goes back to this idea of our brain is like just trying to keep us alive, right? So it's going to make these snap decisions, um, which is awesome, but our lives are so complex, right? There's all different kinds of threats and all kinds of dangers and the brain can be really reactive and it can get us into trouble.
0: Absolutely, um, and it's it's interesting because like we'll have our mind, but then we'll also have our brain, right? Our mind is telling us one thing, and our brain is telling another, and our body's telling us. It's being able to make sense of all this, and that's the beauty of being a human is that we have so many systems at work, and they can communicate with one another, but they can also have disagreements. And being able to have someone like you, Deb, you can help clarify those messages, which I which I'm a huge fan of, and so. Now that we've talked about like the importance of speaking with a pain psychologist and helping us understand how to process that pain throughout the entire pain journey, right? Because psychogenic pain and neurogenic pain are very tied together and medications aren't going to address the psychogenic pain. Um, someone's listening to this episode right now and they're like, yeah, you know, maybe I should start looking out for a pain psychologist. What is the best way for them to find one? How do they know they're going to be working with a good one? Cause there's so many out there. Um, where do people start?
1: Yeah. Great question. So, um, where I encourage people to start is by asking your doctor or their physical therapist. I get a lot of referrals from both those folks. Um, also if people are currently seeing a therapist asking their therapist, if they know of a pain therapist, um, I get, quite a few referrals from other therapists. Um, And I often work um, adjunctly with other therapists. So somebody might be seeing a therapist for um, marriage-related issues. And I work with the person specifically on pain management. Um, Other resources, um, there's the American Association of Pain Psychology. If you just google that it's a great website they have all kinds of resources for professionals and consumers and they have listings of professionals nationwide um i always encourage people to gather a few names and to interview the people i mean when you want to make sure that you have a good rapport with somebody you want to make sure that they understand what your pain experience is and that they just sort of generally are good listeners and respond appropriately. Um, You want to get a sense of their training and ask specifically how they work. The gold standards for treating chronic pain are cognitive behavioral therapy, which is also known as CBT, acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT, um, mindfulness, and biofeedback. there's also a lot of interest and successes um, occurred with pain reprocessing therapy, which is a little bit newer on the scene. And pain reprocessing therapy is basically a protocol trying to train your brain to say that pain suddenly you don't need to respond to with fear. And if people Google pain reprocessing therapy, there's a website that lists practitioners nationwide.
0: Beautiful. So we have those resources. Um, so action number one is to be able to. If you think that you are considering working with someone, we have those resources. But in uh, and, and addition to that, we always want to leave listeners out with a couple different action steps. And so for the listeners out there, um, Dev, what action steps do you have for them to take? Um, so then that way they could uh, just get a, a, a step up on on their pain.
1: I love this question. Okay. So the three that I always recommend came to mind really quickly. Um, the first is exercise. Movement is important. Um, as you know, pain avoidance is the number one cause of disability when people are dealing with chronic pain. And also want to always make sure that people talk to their physical therapist or their doctor before starting any new exercise routine um the thing about exercise too that i like is that it helps with sleep helps with appetite helps with mood helps with digestion so our bodies are designed to move in whatever way that brings you pleasure in whatever way your body can move Um, the next is socializing and um our connections to others is just super important. And people with chronic pain tend to isolate. There's this sort of existential loneliness that people often experience because they feel like, and it might be true that nobody else is experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. And that creates a distance from other people. And The more we distance from other people, the more depressed we'll feel, the more anxious we'll feel, and that just leads us down a a rabbit hole of other health problems. This is one of the reasons why I find that it's so important in my work to get people to put the pain experience in the background, because that allows the full person to be present with all of our quirks and interests and bad jokes and whatnot, so we can be present and connect with other people in real time. And the third is meditation. And I encourage all my clients to meditate. And um, when I wrap up treatment with people, I always ask what was helpful, what was not so helpful. Literally, 100% of the time, people say meditation was the most helpful thing they did. And then I think they look at me and feel bad and say, Oh yeah, you are helpful too. Um, and so that's really sweet and funny, but hey, if I got folks to medif- meditate, that's all good for me. As far as meditation goes, there's lots of different kinds of meditation. And I like to encourage people to start with what's called a focus meditation. And you try to focus on a particular thing. It could be your breath, the mantra guided uh, meditation. And it's one of those things that's really easy in principle, but difficult to do. We all have kind of a monkey mind, goes all over the place. And that's actually okay. In fact, it's really good because it helps us become aware of our thoughts, like, oh, there I am again worrying, one of my favorite activities. And in the process of refocusing our brain, we're changing structural, neural structures structures in the prefrontal cortex and this ability to refocus becomes a superpower when you're living with chronic pain because our brain can only pay attention to one thing at a time so it can pay attention to that pain signal or it can pay attention to having dinner with our family and the other piece about meditation that I so appreciate is that there's a particular type of breathing we try to do with meditation, which is just basically deep breathing. Imagine you're breathing into your belly and your exhale is longer than your inhale. And what that facilitates is it activates the parasympathetic or the calming nervous system, which is like a bomb for our nervous system. And in my practice, I encourage people to, Take five minutes a day or five minutes, do this breathing, deep belly breath, long exhale. Do that for five minutes, maybe four or five times throughout the day. And even after just a week, people start to report that they feel calmer, a little bit of shift in their pain experience, improved mood. They'll say things like, my wife said I was really nice this week. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) And all of that I love because all of those things are free.
0: Some really powerful stuff. So there you have it. uh, Deb said, move. You got to exercise. You got to socialize. You're not in this alone. Even though it feels like you're all this by yourself, you have people who are experiencing very similar issues like you. But there's also a lot of people such as Deb and myself who are there to help you. And meditation. It's a fantastic thing. I think one of the cool things about meditation is that it gives you the opportunity to say, all right, these are the things that are going through my head or I'm trying to – it gives you the opportunity to let go. It's so easy for us to hold on to things. And we hold on to it. It costs a lot of energy, and it makes us really, really stressed. And that stress will actually increase the pain perception. And so these are all very, very valuable action steps, Deb. And I really appreciate uh, the time that you took out of your day um, to be able to share it with the listeners. And last but not least, you've been sharing a lot of really fantastic information. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Is there anything that you would like to share uh, about you, about your practice?
1: Oh, uh, thank you. Um, I think the easiest place to go to is my website, which is drdebnelson.com. I've got all my information on the website. Um, I've got information about chronic pain workshops, um, I also offer individual therapy and consultation to other healthcare providers. Um, and the other resource, which I think is really great, is your podcast. Talk about my podcast? Yes, your podcast. Because I, I mean, I really appreciate that you cover such a wide range of aspects connected to chronic pain. Um, coming at it from all different angles, um, I think one addresses the complexity of it. Um, it allows people to find something that probably fits their need, you know, because everybody's pain experience is unique. And um, the information that you have there is really valuable. So thank you to you.
0: It's a uh, it's a pleasure, Deb. Thank you so much again. This is awesome, and yeah, I'm excited to to just stay in touch and. So we can continue to help people all throughout the world.
1: That'd be great. Thank you, Ashley.
0: Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you got some help from today's podcast. And for more info, check us out at ifixyoursciatica.com. Have a fantastic and pain-free day. No patient-therapist relationship is formed by listening to this podcast. We are not providing medical advice, and all information should be confirmed by a medical provider.
1: Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at lifemd.com. Read all warnings before using GLP 1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C cell tumors. Do not use GLP 1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer.